Well, good morning to you online, visiting with us uh, from wherever you are, and good morning to you in this room. Uh, last week, we began a series called Life and Doctrine, and it's this incredible conversation of the things that one would believe and how it shapes our life. And if it's not shaping our life, then ultimately, you don't believe it. And there's a weird tension that's here, and we want to press into that tension over the next several weeks, uh, together as a church family and online. And last week we began talking about God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, and how in Trinity there's this incredible relationship that exists in themselves that we have been invited into through Jesus Christ, and that that shapes our relationships as we go about our daily life in every moment of our weeks. This morning we kind of dive into the second theme, which is the conversation around the very scriptures, the words of God to us. So before we get started, would you pray with me and ask God to really bless this time. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this morning, we thank you for the, the lyrics of the songs that we have sung and how they speak to just incredible life that's found in your Son, incredible realities found in the Father, incredible gifts that come through and by the Holy Spirit. God, we pray this morning that as we take a, a look at your words to us, that um, it would press into that, that kind of that tender space of do we value the scriptures? Do we read them? Do we, let, do we let your words have a say in our life while we go about living our life? God, we pray that you would speak into our lives this morning. In your name we pray, amen. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy, this is a, a much older man speaking to a very young man. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. This is the kind of the moniker verse that we've been speaking to and that we'll speak to over the next several weeks. And Paul is joining these two, these two things together because you can't pull them apart. We live our lives born out of what it is that we believe. And Paul, this older Christ follower who's traveled kind of the known world of his day through three long missionary journeys that has been completely shaped by the things that he believes connected to who Christ is, is now speaking into a younger brother, a, a son of sorts life to say, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. And as you read on in that passage, it says, for if you do these things, it will save yourself and also your hearers. We want to be a people that are continually linking life and doctrine together. For example, if we talk about the conversation of forgiveness, it is either a required aspect of our Christian faith that Jesus speaks to, or it is not. It is either something that we practice every single day of our life because it is something that is founded in the text of Scripture, revealed in Christ Himself, or it is not something that shapes our life. It's not that weird in-between space. It's kind of one or the other. This doctrine, this teaching of forgiveness, which is found in Christ, either shapes us or it doesn't. And given where we are going this morning, as it relates to the Scriptures themselves, Jesus makes it clear through the Scriptures that forgiveness is a vital part. It is an essential part of our life in Christ. It's curious, when you get into the moments where Jesus talks about forgiveness, there are some powerful words, and these are clear words, because I know there are places in the Scriptures where we would read it and we're like, oh, what does that mean? And I understand that there are those very real spaces. But there are other spaces where Jesus says, if you do not forgive others, I will not forgive you. It doesn't allow the, well, I don't know what he means by that. Like, well, just what it says. If you're not going to forgive others, then you will not be on the receiving end of forgiveness from your heavenly Father in heaven. 
It is either a doctrine, it's a teaching that shapes our our lives, or it's something that doesn't shape our life at all. This series is working through the things that we believe in the hopes that it would actually shape the way that we live our lives. Hence, Paul to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Today, the doctrine that we are going to be working through is connected to the Scriptures, the very Word of God. Some of you have one of these. I know it's old-fashioned. Some of you have it kind of more on your phone. Both are acceptable. Both are the same things because it's really the content of it uh, that really shapes our life. And when I say God's Word, here's a definition on the screen that we will kind of unpack as the morning goes along. God's Word, the written Word of God and the ongoing Word of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit and the dynamic relationship between these two. I want to read this again just so you can let it sink in because there's, there's some dynamics here that we will be highlighting as we work our way through. The written Word of God and the ongoing Word of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit and the dynamic relationship between these two. We'll end our time this morning talking about this dynamic relationship between the written Word of God and the Word of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. How many of you have an an, an actual physical Bible, either like one of these ones or one of these ones? Just kind of where is it? So if you would would find yours this morning, you just want me to grab it, pull it out, uh, and we'll talk about it here just for a moment. Physical Bible, folks, where are you? Nowhere. All right. Uh, Digital Bible, folks, where are you? So, so we believe here in this church, I believe personally, <laughs> that's awkward, no one has one of the paper ones anymore, uh, I believe that God has in history spoken to and laid on the hearts of people, inspired them to write down the very words of God, that he might make himself known to the world that he has made and to the world that He is trying to redeem. I believe, this church believes, that God Himself has inspired authors to write the text of Scripture that make His name known and His activity in the world and what He's going to do in the world presently and what He's ultimately going to do in the end. We believe that God has spoken into the hearts of humans just like you and I and has inspired them. There are some passages that speak to this. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it reads this, and many of you in this room would know this. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. There are some other ones that most of us probably haven't read before. This one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 13. It reads this, What we speak, this is Paul speaking, what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Paul is essentially saying, what we're saying to you isn't coming from us, it's coming from someone outside of us, a.k.a. God himself. And our words are spirit-taught words that ought to shape your life in all kinds of wonderful ways. In 2 Peter 1, 20-21, it reads this, you must understand, then he goes on to write a few things, and then it lands on this line where it says, prophecy never had its origins in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Kind of carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking the very words of God to the ones who would hear them. In other words, God, through human beings, spanning some 1,600 years through 40-plus authors, has given us our Bible that has some 66 books in it. 
I want to watch a little clip that's put up by the Alpha series that speaks to the same idea of inspiration. Please watch the screen and enjoy this. So, what is the Bible? The Bible is a book, or more accurately, it's a collection of books. The word Bible comes from a Latin word, Biblia, which means books or library of books. It's divided into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the larger of the two and includes what was written before Jesus lived. The New Testament is what was written afterwards. Together, the Old and the New Testament were written over a span of around 1,600 years by at least 40 different authors kings, scholars, tax collectors, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, historians, teachers, prophets, and doctors. They wrote different types of literature, like history, poetry, prophecy, and letters. The Bible is 100% the work of human authors, but Christians believe it's also 100% inspired by God. So how can that be? One of the greatest English architects, Sir Christopher Wren, is best known for building St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He was the chief architect on the project, which took about 36 years to finish. As the architect, he carefully planned where each stone should go. And even though he never laid a stone himself, no one would dispute the fact that he built it. Sir Christopher Wren was the inspiration behind it all. In a similar way, with the Bible, there are many different writers, but one architect, one inspiration behind it all, God himself. We believe wholeheartedly that God is the author, that God is the one who inspires, that God is the one who is impressed upon humans to write the things that they wrote about who he is, his activity in the world, and how he's done something significant through his son and invites all, everyone to participate in this incredible opportunity. Before we get to where we really want to go this morning, we're going to have a bit of a, kind of a, a unique conversation inside the sermon. Uh, for those of you that kind of live in the public square and you try to articulate faith and you try to kind of argue for things that are very real connected to our faith in Christ, I know that there's lots of conversation around the scriptures and whether they're trustworthy, whether they are uh, something to take seriously, that it's more than a fairy tale and that it's been changed through the course of time. And how many of you have ever engaged in dialogue with friends or family that, that the Bible is something that you shouldn't even take seriously because it's just all kind of myth and legend. And if you kind of in that space, well, this morning, I want to talk to you about some of the ways in which we can actually have that conversation with people if they are at least half interested in our scriptures because it ultimately always boils down to issues of faith. But there are ways in which we can talk to people around the scriptures that if nothing else, they're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. And it kind of pulls apart some of the, the, the falsely constructed arguments against the scriptures. And there are seven things. And last night, when we were kind of working through them, like, these are a quick seven. Like, this is not like five minutes per seven. Uh, I've taken a page out of my sermon because it, it was like 8.20, and the, our, our children's staff would, like, murder us afterwards if we went that long. So here are kind of quick seven things that I want to highlight for you this morning about the scriptures and why they are trustworthy. Because uh, some people who they enter into conversations of faith through history, through apologetics, through all kinds of things. Uh, and here are seven things that we'll kind of work through very quickly. And, and you can throw those up on the screen. And if you have a phone, you can take a picture of it because I would encourage you to go, go read around these things as we make our way through them. Number one is this incredible uh, term called topography. And, and what this is, is, is something very, very simple. Uh, the scriptures record 
the geography of the land very, very, very clearly. And what's fascinating is when you get into the authorship of any text of Scripture, or any text at all, whether it's the Bible or not, people are very interested, like, how do they describe the physical features of the land in which they are describing these things that have happened? Well, the authors of Scripture describe uniquely the lay of the land in a way that is incredibly detailed. And wonderfully enough, all of their descriptions are actually accurate about the greater Jerusalem area, kind of where Abraham lived and where he traveled and all of those kinds of things. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. When it talks about how they went up to Jerusalem, like those little phrases seem to be insignificant, but it's actually going up about 3,000 feet to Jerusalem. Like it's going up a mountain to this. When they went down into the Kidron Valley and when they went over to the other side and all of these phrases about the lay of the land are on point and 100% accurate. It names all kinds of cities, mountains, rivers, ravines, valleys, and the list goes on and on and on, and all of these things are true. To the point, archaeologists, scientists, sociologists, ones who would often argue that it's not trustworthy for life and living, but they fully know that it's trustworthy because they use the scriptures to talk about and discover realities of first century life in, in Jerusalem in the surrounding areas. It's a primary source for digging into the very comings and goings of daily life for individuals in this place. Archaeologists continue to use the scriptures as it relates to where are we going to kind of dig and explore and many of the archaeological finds were born out of, well, this is where the Bible says this city was. Let's go put a shovel in the ground. And ironically enough, there's a city. And there's all kinds of wonderful, real, true, factual, scientific dynamics connected to the topography of the scriptures that speaks to its authenticity and why we can trust it. Number two is historicity. The scriptures outline over 100 different historical characters that have nothing to do with necessarily the Bible, but just Persian kings, Babylonian kings, Egyptian kings, uh, different layers of government and structures. They reference coins that were present in the Roman Empire. They talk about different offices like Felix and Carinius and all these characters, and every single one of the references to these historical characters line up exactly with human history. The historicity of the scriptures you cannot deny and you can't argue against because as it outlines people and kingdoms and uh, conquests and all the different things that are there, it's true. As you can kind of dive into history and if it mentions someone, you can go find where they are and it lines up in the same dates and the same time and the same places. And here's another way in which the scriptures have demonstrated themselves to be trustworthy as we work our way through its information. Third one, extra biblical sources. Historians love primary sources. They love people who lived and had eyewitness accounts of different things, and we put a lot of value in them. I remember at school, uh, my first year of university, my professor gave me a syllabus, and I'm like, what's a term paper? Like, the public school didn't prepare me for term papers, and they didn't define what a primary source was, and what is uh, Chicago Turabian, like all of these weird terms. And all of a sudden, I'm left to discover primary sources and secondary sources and why the primary ones are the better ones and the more primary you have. Well, you can dig into history and you can find primary sources, individuals like Josephus and Tacitus, Sidonis and Pliny the Elder. These are first century Roman historians that all talk about 
this unique person of Jesus from Nazareth. They all talk about how this guy was killed by the Romans and that his followers were incredibly radical. They all speak to it. I can build a significant case for the work and person of Jesus Christ and not even use the Scriptures themselves. I can use first century eyewitness historians that talk about who Jesus was, the movement that he started, and the, and the rift that it created in and around the city of Jerusalem about 33 AD. The historicity, all of these pieces just, again, build into the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. Um, the fourth one is the public witness of Jesus' followers. We cannot undersell the weight of people who saw him die, saw him be buried in a tomb, and then saw him live after he was dead. We cannot undersell the eyewitness account of those first few hundred people that saw him die, saw him go into a tomb, and then saw him afterwards and had supper with him and probably told jokes with him and, and walked on beaches with him and had incredible conversations because these individuals who were killed for their faith, they were not killed because they loved people. They were not killed because they fed people who needed food. They were not killed because they cared for the dying. They were not killed for these things. They were killed because they would not renounce the fact that they had seen Jesus living after He was dead. This is what they were on trial for. This is what they died for. Is no one comes back from the dead. And you can't keep saying that God has done this in this particular man. And they're like, well, I can't unsee what I've seen. They're so committed to this that it cost them their lives. It's not because they were nice. It's not because they waved to their neighbor. It's not because they paid their taxes. It's not because of these things that they were persecuted from. It's because they claimed they saw someone die. And then they claimed that they saw that same man live again. And some of them said, we had dinner together. Some of them said, I touched his hands and his side. Some of them said, well, we talked and he came to my home. And this is what they died for. We cannot undersell the weight of these historical figures who gave their life because they would not kind of renounce what they have physically seen with their eyes. The fifth one, a manuscript evidence. We have, and when I say we, this is like the, the kind of the society of biblical literature, the, the group that really devotes their life to a scholarly approach to handling the text of Scripture. We have over 25,000 first century documents or manuscripts of the New Testament. Over 25,000 of them. And these 25,000 are within 30 to 50 years of the original events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There is no other source from history that has that many sources that close to the actual events. Most books from history that we would read in the public school system and in university, they would be describing events that happened hundreds of years before the source that you're using, and we might only have two or three sources. It's curious, when we get into the actual amount of evidence that we have, actual pieces of paper that are the actual scriptures from the first century, it is remarkable. One of my professors at school, he's like all in, a part of this SBL community, and he travels the world looking at manuscripts. Several years ago, uh, they discovered a mummy in Egypt, 
And what made the biblical community really excited is that on the inside of that mummy's face mask was the actual Gospel of Mark. And as they began to do their work of transferring the letter, the ink from the inside of the mummy mask to a piece of paper that moved the kind of like, this is the earliest manuscript of Mark, it moved it up by like 15, 20 years. And what's amazing is when you know that story well, it, it, it clearly describes that the gospel of Jesus Christ had reached the upper echelons of the Egyptian royalty. And they used this piece of paper to mummify one of their persons. Every year that goes by, there is more and more and more scientific archaeological evidence that speaks to how the, trust, the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. Um, there's a vetting system that went into the books that you have in your Bible. It's not just randomness. They didn't gather around and throw darts at a wall and like, oh, these books make it and these don't. That's not how this worked. Early on, it was you had to be a close associate, a first contact of the apostles of Jesus Christ. This is where kind of all, every book that's in your Bible, it's from this inner circle of individuals had a close, close relationship of those who knew and saw and talked and walked with Jesus himself. The second one is, and this, this might seem small, but you'll see why it's a big deal in a minute. The second vetting system of the books that made it into the scriptures is that they had to be widely accepted across the churches of the first century. So whether it's Corinth or Thessalonica or Thyatira or all these different churches, Everyone had to agree that these were like, the, there's something special and unique about these books that they all recognized, that they spoke to, that they referenced, and it was something uniform across the first century church. You're like, well, that's not a big deal. Well, there's about a hundred of you in this room. If I asked each of you to write down your top five favorite books, I'll bet my life that there's not a list that's the same five. And ironically, through all of these churches, they all said these are the books, that there's something unique about them. There's something special about them. And this is the second layer of kind of vetting into the scriptures. The third one, and this is the big one, consistency. They all talk about the same thing. There's not like weird rogue ideas. Those ones kind of never made it in, which is why they weren't accepted by the vast majority of the churches. Because it probably wasn't connected to the apostles and those closest to the life and work of Jesus Christ. And the last one, and this is one of the ones that I, I kind of get excited about because I, I kind of love this world a little bit, um, is it's withstood rigorous scrutiny. For 2,000 years, people have been arguing against the authenticity of the Scriptures. And I suspect most of you have heard at some point that you can't trust it because it was written 2,000 years ago, and through time, someone has changed what it says. Have you heard that from anybody? That kind of like, oh, it's just a book written by old guys a long time ago, and, and through translation, it, it's nowhere near what it was in the beginning. Well, the beautiful thing about science and archaeology is that we can actually measure that. So as this conversation continues to grow through the late 70s, 80s, 90s, and even into today, into today uh, there is a real moment in time, back in the 1950s, and we'll put this picture up, where there's two shepherds, two boys, two 12-year-old boys, playing basically a game with rocks. And that little cave that you see, that's found in this little village of Qumran outside of Jerusalem. And they were kind of watching sheep, throwing stones, 12-year-old boy stuff. We, we haven't changed in 2,000 years. And as they throw stones into one of these caves, it actually, they hear a pot break. And like every 12-year-old boy, whether it's 2021 or 1, they went investigating. What did we break? Because we might be in trouble. 
And when they discovered what they broke, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of clay jars filled with scrolls. Scrolls that date back to 200 BC to this unique community called the Essenes. And inside these scrolls, or sorry, inside these jars were literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of all kinds of literature from 200 years before Jesus Christ. One of those scrolls is what they call the Great Isaiah Scroll. And the reason why they call it the Great Isaiah Scroll is because it's literally the whole book of Isaiah that you would have in your Bible. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, everybody kind of held their breath because this is the moment of, like, has it actually been changed? Has it been moved from what it was originally said to what we have in our text of Scripture now? And if you read the Great Isaiah Scroll today, which is in museums around the world, it is the exact same of what's in your book of Isaiah right now. And it, and it speaks into, this hasn't been changed. It hasn't been manipulated by people over the last 2,300 years. It's remarkable when you get into the trustworthiness of the Scripture. And just a few weeks ago, they did another dive in another cave, close to this one, in what's called the Cave of Horrors. And the reason why it's called that is because there's skeletons of dead people everywhere. And as they descended to the bottom of this cave, they came across another cache of more baskets and jars. And more books of the Old Testament were discovered, namely Nehemiah and the, and the Minor Prophets. And again, it's what was written 2,300 years ago is what you would read in your Bibles today. It's remarkable how God has weaved together His Word, how He has protected it and maintained it for 2,300 years. It is remarkable when we get into all of these little conversations that speak to the trustworthiness of Scripture as we engage in the public square about why the Bible is trustworthy. Now, I know that those are kind of like apologetics in ways that we can have debates with people, but ultimately, the conversation shifts away from apologetics to issues of life and faith. Woven into the text of Scripture, there are phrases that get into the very personal aspect of your life and my life. Verses like this. This is Psalm 32.8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Most of you in this room and listening online, if you've grown up in church, you would probably memorize this verse at some point. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. Isaiah 30, 21. And this is one of my favorites. Your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto your path. John 14, 26. The Advocate the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said. All of these passages of Scripture, plus dozens of more, which we just don't have time to put them all in, all of them speak to this definition of God's Word that we highlight on the front end. The written Word of God and the ongoing Word of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit and the dynamic relationship between these two. And I want to explain this dynamic between the written Word of God and the Holy Spirit as best I can in the simplest way I can. 
If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if at some point in your life you have made a decision to follow Christ, we are told from God Himself that He gives to us the Holy Spirit who dwells inside our lives. So as you look at Philip, as I look at you, if you're a Christ follower, there's this agent that's a part of my life that you can't see but is very real and very present in my life. And while I go about my life, as I'm reading the words of God, this agent that is hidden inside of me, God Himself who dwells, this agent, in concert with the written Word of God, begin to talk to one another. And it begins to remind me, and shape me, and move me, and compel me, and convict me, and on and on the characteristics go. Eugene Peterson one of my favorite authors, he writes it this way. In order to read the scriptures adequately and accurately, it is necessary at the same time to live them. It is necessary at the same time to live them. And here's, here are the lines that might sting. Not to live them as a prerequisite to reading them, and not to live them as a consequence of reading them. Many Christians that I know don't want to read the Bible because they're afraid of what it might say about their life. And then when they do read it, they're like, oh, goodness, now I can't do this anymore. As though somehow that's a bad thing for you. <laughs> because if we're honest, look what we've made of our life. We don't read them as a prerequisite to life, nor do we live our life as a consequence to them. We read them while we live our life. And then he goes on to says this, it means letting another have a say in everything that we're doing. It's as easy as that, and it's as hard as that. We began our conversation with forgiveness. The reason why this conversation is such a big part of our life as Christ followers is that I know that the Scriptures speak to this over and over and over again. And where the Word of God, both the written Word of God and this Holy Spirit who lives inside of me, when I begin to live my life, these things begin to come into, into this beautiful relationship together. Every pastor for the last 2,000 years, as they do what I'm doing here this morning, they have been encouraging, pleading, begging congregations to do two spiritual disciplines. And it's in a song that we used to sing when we were kids. Read your Bibles and pray every day. Read your Bibles and pray every day. Read your Bibles and pray every day. This is not new. I know we try to make it Instagram and new and spinny. Like, this has been around a long time. So if you're ever in a church and someone's like, I've got news for you. This is a game changer. This has been around for a long time. A long time. The reason why pastors have been saying these two things is because this is the very way in which we discover God's words and go to work applying them in our life. When I read the Scriptures and I pray, I'm engaging the Word of God and I'm inviting God Himself to shape my life. This is this dynamic relationship that we spoke to a moment ago. And we don't read the Scriptures and, and, and hear the nuance of this. We don't read Scriptures because we want to earn badges as good Christians. I grew up in a midweek children's program called Junior Astronauts. It was about week three and I realized that it had nothing to do with being an astronaut. 
I have no idea why it was this name, but we had a blue sash. That was my first clue that it was not to do with real astronauts. But it was a weird midweek kind of kids program. And my blue sash, by the end of the year, I was like the Brigadier General of Canada. I had badges, and I had crosses, and I had stars, and I had all kinds of things that I had done all these things. And much of our Christian life is this weird, ironic, we have a blue sash that no one can see, that I can earn all these things. We read the Scriptures because we're inviting God into having a say in our life. We're inviting Him into our life to say, with the Holy Spirit in my life, with the Word of God, it shapes my life. And here's this read and prayer together. And put this up on the screen. In time, reading and prayer, these two disciplines create a spiritually shaped arena by which our lives, sorry, by which we live our lives as a witness to and for the goodness of God. In time, these two spiritual disciplines create a spiritual, spiritually shaped arena by which we live our lives as a witness to and for the goodness of God. I'm going to invite Dana and team back because they're going to lead us in a song in a moment. But I want, to, I want to go back to this kind of forgiveness conversation that we referenced early in the sermon this morning. It's because of my reading of the Word of God and my prayer life that I discover how essential forgiveness is. It's by reading the text of Scripture and reading the lines that say, if you do not forgive others, then you're not going to be on the receiving end of forgiveness from my Heavenly Father. If you do not forgive as you have been forgiven, then you're not going to be forgiven. Like These are clear words of instruction that we see in the Scriptures. So when something comes into my life that violates my life, whether that's my mind or my heart or my physical body or whatever it might be, I don't need to now go and pray about what I'm to do towards this person. Through my reading and through my prayer, it has created a spiritual arena by which I automatically know what I'm to do. The trouble is, it's hard It's hard. Because what I want to have happen to said persons is not forgiveness. It's sometimes filled with like violence in my own head. It can be filled with vengeance and rage. It can be filled with I'm never going to be involved in that person's life again. I can begin to plot kind of this weird moment of like, I'll get you back kind of thing. It's through my reading and through my prayer that has created this spiritual arena of I don't need to pray through this anymore. When it comes to my money that I have, it's through my reading and through my prayer that has shaped the spiritual environment where which I know now who the money belongs to, how I'm to use this treasure for the goodness of God. My mar- There's so many things through reading and through prayer, the Word of God and the living Word of God interplaying on my life, creating this environment by which I automatically know where I'm to go in these spaces. I would encourage you, as every pastor has for 2,000 years, to read and pray. And whatever it is that you're struggling through, because of my reading and prayer, this is what I also know. Nothing is impossible. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's curious how we pull that verse out, throw it on wall art in our homes. It's, I think it's on our wall somewhere in our home. 
But the point of that is not for wall art. The point of that is it's going to be hard to forgive that person. But I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can read other places where give me my daily bread. Give me all that I need. Give me my provision to go and say sorry to said person. Give me all that I need to be generous with the treasure that you've given to me. Give me all that I need to love my wife or my family this day. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When I read and pray, when I read and pray, when I read and pray, it creates a spiritually shaped arena that shapes my life every day. And it goes back into some of the passages that we read a moment ago. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. That when you walk this way, you'll hear a voice, do this. And we do this. We either believe the scriptures are God's words to us, or we don't. And if we do, we read and pray. Every day. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father. We want to be people who pray. Who pray over your words who read them diligently, who soaks them up into our lives, that we would engage the Scriptures in such a way to give you the dominant say about how we live our lives. For your glory, to point others to you, but also for my life's sake, that I would by faith practice the disciplines that you invite me to practice. That I can experience real forgiveness and real reconciliation in relationships with people that I value deeply. That I would read how I'm to interact with people who I value deeply. That I would see from the page of Scripture how you function and have this deference for others of serving others and celebrating others lifting them up over my own, that I wouldn't treat people as though I'm better than them. May we be a people who read and pray, read and pray, read and pray. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.